Hello and welcome to the Hidden History of Texas. I'm your host, Hank Wilson, and this is episode 33, Independence and a Republic is Born, Sort of. This program is brought to you by digital media publishers Ashby, Navis, and Tennyson. Download our audiobooks at Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Barnes & Noble, and stores around the world. Visit ashbynavis.com for more information. Well, it's time to start discussing the actual founding of what was to be known as the Republic of Texas. Now, it is true, and while it is true, that most Anglo-Texans and many of the Mexican Texans, or Los Tejanos, believed that Texas began working to become a nation after the victory over Santa Ana at San Jacinto, the reality is quite different. Now, in earlier episodes, I talked about the various declarations that had been passed during the 1830s. The actual convention that was to declare that Texas was independent began in March of 1836, prior to the falling of the Alamo. Convention was held at Washington on the Brazos on March 1, 1836, and it was very different from the consultation or any of the previous gatherings. There were 41 delegates present and another 59 people who periodically stopped by or attended the meetings. An interesting fact about the makeup of the convention is that two of the delegates, Jose Francisco Ruiz and Jose Antonio Navarro of Bear, were native Texans. One, Lorenzo de Zavala, had actually been born in Mexico. Of the rest of the delegates, only 10 had been living in Texas before 1835. The majority were late arrivals who came from either the United States or from Europe. While about two-thirds of the delegates were not yet 40, several of them already had political experience. For example, Samuel P. Carson of Pecan Point served in the North Carolina legislature and Robert Potter of Nacogdoches in the U.S. House of Representatives. On March 1st, George C. Childress, who had returned from a visit with President Jackson in Tennessee, presented a resolution calling for independence. It was quickly adopted and Childress was appointed to lead a committee of five in drafting a final Declaration of Independence. Childress must have been expecting this, because when the committee met that evening, he pulled out a statement he had brought from Tennessee. That document followed the outline and contained the main features of the United States Declaration of Independence. On March 2nd, the delegates unanimously adopted his suggested declaration. Now, after 58 of the 59 members signed the document, the Republic of Texas was unofficially born. Upon receiving the news about the fall of the Alamo and that Santa Ana's army was marching eastward, the convention hastily adopted a constitution, signed it, and elected an interim government. David G. Burnett was elected president. Lorenzo de Zavala, vice president, Samuel P. Carson, Secretary of State, Thomas J. Rusk, Secretary of War, Bailey Hardiman, Secretary of the Treasury, Robert Potter, Secretary of the Navy, and David Thomas, Attorney General. Immediately after this, the delegates fled Washington on the Brazos and headed towards Galveston Island. Upon hearing of Houston's victory at San Jacinto, they quickly headed to the San Jacinto battlefield and began negotiations to end the war. At Velasco on May 14th, they had Santa Ana sign two treaties, one public, one secret. 
the public treaty ended hostilities and restored private property. Texan and Mexican prisoners were to be released, and Mexican troops would retire beyond the Rio Grande. The secret treaty included the provision that Santa Ana was to be taken to Veracruz and released. In return for this, Santa Ana agreed to seek Mexican government approval of both treaties and to negotiate a permanent treaty that acknowledged Texas independence and recognized its boundary as the Rio Grande. Now, Texans demanded that Santa Ana should be put to death. But on June 4th, the dictator, his secretary, Ramon Martinez Carro, and Colonel Juan N. Almonte were put aboard the ship, the Invincible, in order to return them to Veracruz. However, General Thomas Jefferson Green, a new arrival from the United States with a company of volunteers, forced President Burnett to remove the men from the vessel and confine them. The two men were kept under guard until the Texas government finally kept the secret agreement they had made at Velasco and returned Santa Ana to Mexico in August. On June 25th, Burnett appointed Major General Mirabar, Mirabeau B. Lamar to succeed the current Secretary of War, Rusk, who had asked to be relieved. However, word soon reached Texas that even though Santa Ana had not yet been returned to Mexico, the Mexican Congress had repudiated Santa Ana, rejected his treaties, and ordered the war with Texas to continue. Now, along with that word came a rumor that General Jose de Urrea was advancing on Goliad, and Rusk tried to change his mind about retiring. However, Burnett was hesitant to remove Lamar, but when Thomas Jefferson Green and Felix Houston Huston, who had arrived in Texas with a group of volunteers from Mississippi, stirred up the soldiers against Lamar, forced Burnett to return Rusk to command. However, when Urrea failed to appear, Rusk did step down, and this time the army chose Huston to replace him. Army unrest continued as the officers openly defied the government and threatened to impose a military dictatorship. The decision not to execute Santa Ana continued to have ramifications over the next several years, not only for Texas, but also for the United States and Mexico. And I'll discuss that over the next few episodes. The new republic faced other problems. On May 19th, Comanche and Caddo Indians attacked Fort Parker. Now, Fort Parker was located on the Navasota River, about 60 miles north of the settlements. They captured two women and three children. The new government had neither the manpower or the resources to mount a rescue or to retaliate against the tribes. There was little to no communications, there were very few roads, and of course there was no regular mail system. The Republic's treasury had no money, the new nation's credit had a very low reputation, and of course hard currency was scarce. Nobody was certain over who owned what land or who had legal title to their land. After the runaway scrape, many families had lost almost everything, and when they finally returned to their homes, they discovered that their property had been destroyed and most of their stock either eaten or run off. All in all, the Republic was off to a very shaky start. 
Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Now, come on, folks, subscribe to the podcast. I try to keep posting new episodes. Sometimes, though, life gets in the way and there's a gap between. But hey, remember, if you want more information on Texas history, visit the Texas State Historical Association. I also have three audiobooks on the hidden history of Texas. First one deals with the 1500s to about 1820, 1820s to 1830s, and the latest release, 1830s to 1836, the Texas Revolution period. You can find these books pretty much wherever you download or listen to audiobooks. Just do a search for The Hidden History of Texas by me, Hank Wilson, and they'll pop right up. Links to all the stores are on my publisher's website, ashbynavis.com. That's ashbynavis.com. Thanks for listening, y'all. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.